Please pray with me. God of grace, let the words of my mouth and the meditations of all our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O God, our strength and our redeemer. Amen. When choosing the scripture for this morning, I decided to cut out most of the verses about love. Those are the verses we hear at weddings. For some of us, they are so familiar and overused as to cause us to glaze over when we hear them read. Love is patient, love is kind, love is not envious or boastful or arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. I decided to cut those verses because I am kind of permanently tired of them. <laughs> but actually, I think I made a mistake in cutting them. I might like these words from Paul's first letter to the Corinthians better if they were not used so much in weddings. And don't get me wrong, I do believe that the love that connects a couple in partnership is genuinely a beautiful thing. But in my experience, it is also more complicated than these words from scripture suggest. More complicated, more flawed, more human. But I think my issue with the words is about trying to place them in the context of marriage. But that is something we have done. We who choose scripture readings for weddings. It was not Paul's intention when writing these words. Of course, some of you will wonder, why bother to preach on the writings of Paul at all? Some of the more problematic passages in the Bible for progressive or liberal Christians come from Paul's letters. It looks like your preacher next week is going to try to tackle some of what Paul says about women in the church, so that should be interesting. <laughs> Many liberal Christians, and particularly feminists, have more or less rejected Paul's letters. And of course, I am a feminist. But as some of you have heard me say before, I have a bit of a soft spot for Paul. I think that more than anything, Paul was a pastor. Paul was a leader who nurtured particular Christian communities in the earliest days of the emergence of churches. When we see his letters in our Bible and imagine that the Bible is supposed to be spiritual truth for all time, we lose sight of what Paul was actually doing. He was writing letters to communities of people he had been closely involved with. He knew these communities and their dynamics and issues, and he wanted to help them be strong and healthy churches, faithful communities of followers of Jesus. So he wrote to them and addressed what he knew about what, he was, what was going on with them. Today we heard a bit from his first letter to the emerging church in Corinth. In this letter to the Corinthians, Paul talks about church conflict. He talks about Christian living, the kind of life or lifestyle that reflects Christian values. He talks about embracing people's diverse gifts for ministry and highlights the importance of understanding that not everyone is the same 
that it is by bringing together our diverse gifts that we form the church, the body of Christ. He expresses a passionate faith in God and an excitement about what God has done in the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a faith and an excitement which he obviously hopes the Corinthians will share. Paul addresses specific issues that had apparently come up in that Corinthian community, issues that are not a part of our community or our culture today, things like what foods are proper to eat, the role of head coverings for women, and a first century perspective on marriage and sexuality that is unrecognizable to people with a 21st century perspective. Paul talked about all of these things in this letter, and he talked about love. So this full picture of a struggling new little church in Corinth is the context for this love. He's not talking about marriage. With Paul's context in mind, what I am most drawn to is the picture of humility. I think a healthy dose of humility is especially helpful to Americans in the 21st century. I know there's a flip side to this. I know that many people struggle with low self-esteem or question their worthiness, or live with a pervasive sense that they are not enough. I know that these things are real, and a different sermon would remind us that in God's eyes, we are always enough, that we are utterly beloved of God. A different sermon would remind us that the grace of God does not require anything in particular from us, but instead embraces us fully, just as we are. An important hope of the Christian life is that we learn to rest in a sense of fundamental security that comes from knowing that being a child of God is the very center of who we are. And surely we remember that on a day when we do a baptism. God does not want for us shame, or lack of self-worth, or low self-esteem. But humility is something different. And I think a healthy dose of humility is especially helpful in the, for Americans in the 21st century. In this season of presidential campaigning, I feel like the arrogance we see from some candidates is appealing to a certain part of the American population who wants to be right and strong and in charge. We are on top of the world, we think, and have little need then to listen to others. And over and over again, I read online discussions where people argue in ways that shut out the voices of anyone who thinks differently. We would do well to have our actions and attitudes and conversations tempered by love, this love that Paul writes about. Paul writes about love, and then he writes about knowledge. He says what every wise person already knows, that we know only in part. We don't know everything. He describes it as seeing through a mirror dimly. Or an older translation says, through a glass darkly. 
Eugene Peterson's contemporary translation puts it this way. We do not yet see things clearly. We are squinting in a fog, peering through the mist. But it will not be long before the weather clears and the sun shines bright. In this chapter of this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul is expressing a simple truth. We don't know everything. This sense that knowledge is always partial and incomplete bridges disciplines. We who talk theology know that we can't really know complete answers to our questions about God. Scientists know that new discoveries or new answers open up more questions, more avenues for exploration. And in the common stuff of our daily lives, we know there is always an element of uncertainty. We can make all kinds of plans and predictions, but we all know that life takes the course it will take, and we don't always know what that is. But in the midst of uncertainty, in the midst of all that we don't know, there is love. Not only the love we feel for one another, in communities, in families, between friends, and yes, in marriage, but the love that never ends, the love that flows from God, the love that is God's greatest gift to us, greater even, Paul says, than the great gifts of faith and hope. I held a class yesterday called Exploring Membership for folks who want to learn more about Methodism in general and this church in particular, and who might consider making the formal commitment of membership in this church. So a bunch of stuff from Methodist founder John Wesley is very fresh in my mind this week. I can't begin to know whether John Wesley had a genuine humility as a person in real life, but one of the things I am particularly drawn to in his writings is the ways he rejects the need to have particular right answers on a whole host of things he calls smaller details. These things he calls smaller details have not always been considered smaller details in the history of the church. They are things that have sometimes been the source of enormous church conflict and even denominational splits. Wesley repeatedly emphasizes that love matters more than correct doctrine. Love matters more than clear ideas. And John Wesley said this in a particular context. It's clear from this sermon that I'm about to quote from that a topic for discussion in his day was the question of whether people who do not believe in God will go to hell. Wesley rejects that idea entirely. And his reason reminds me of this letter from Paul. Paul says that knowledge or understanding are only partial, but that love is complete. And John Wesley says this, perhaps there may be some well-meaning persons who carry this further still, whoever that whatever change is wrought in human beings, whether in their hearts or lives, yet if they have not clear views of those orthodox doctrines, 
the fall of humanity, justification by faith, and of the atonement made by the death of Christ, and of his righteousness transferred to them, they can have no benefit from his death. I dare in no way affirm this. Indeed, I do not believe it. I believe the merciful God regards the lives and tempers of people more than their ideas. I believe God respects the goodness of the heart rather than the clearness of the head. And that if the heart of a person be filled by the grace of God and the power of his spirit with the humble, gentle, patient love of God and humankind, God will not cast him into the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels because his ideas are not clear or because his conceptions are confused. That's from a sermon titled, On Living Without God. In many ways, we are a community that values knowledge. We are in a university town. We value clear thinking, clear ideas. So maybe Paul's letter is for us too. Maybe the gentle reminder that love never ends together with the reminder that we know only in part, can help us hold our ideas gently while we hold firmly to love. Perhaps there is that future time when, in Paul's words, the complete comes and the partial will come to an end. Perhaps there is that time when we will see face to face those things we see now as if through a mirror dimly. Perhaps the day will come when we will know fully, even as we are fully known, as we have been known by God. But in the meantime, let us strive for love. Amen.